So I'm not only uh, amazed by them because I have no musical talent, but because uh, you know they give up their time to be here early on a Sunday morning um, to help lead us in worshiping our God. And so thank you guys so much for that. I know they hate me when I do this, but um, thank you. And Ted's off to help lead our kids and worship as well. So his job's not over yet. <laughs> Well, good morning, family. Welcome home. I hope everyone's having a great Sunday morning. We're going, going, going to continue our journey through the book of Genesis as we hit Genesis chapter 3. Um, it's interesting, I was just thinking before I stepped up here, um, you could probably almost say these three chapters are some of the most important foundational chapters in our whole understanding of humanity and who God is and our, what our world is. And so we're going to hit that in a minute. So, but before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time we can gather at your church. Thank you for your word that we can read it, we can understand, we can see you, we can see what you've done for us, what we have done against you, and also how we can respond in faith. So Lord, this morning as we open up Genesis chapter 3, I pray that you speak through it, that you can show us your truth, that you can build us up to follow you all, all of our days. Pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. There's something wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Is that, does anyone recognize that? The theologian's Aerosmith wrote this, released this song in 1993. Um, you probably can sing it now that you know is Aerosmith. But these simple words describe what all humanity feels and knows. There's something wrong with the world today. There's something wrong. There's something off. There's something that is not right. And humanity has been trying to figure this out, understand this, and has even been trying to fix it. And this wrongness goes deeper than just something that's out there. It's actually something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our eyes. There's something wrong with who we are, and we're trying to understand it. Now, I don't know how Aerosmith would answer what's wrong or what's the solution, but I do know that the Bible gives us a very clear explanation of what is wrong and also how it can be fixed. And this is not new by any stretch of the imagination. That humanity, since we've been around, has felt like something is wrong. At around the turn of the century, that is the turn of the 19th century, a newspaper posts a quest, posed a question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, a Christian thinker at the time, wrote back a simple letter that said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. This is a response showing that he understood the Christian reality of what is wrong with this world. We are. There's something wrong with us, that we're broken, that we have sin, that this affects all that we touch. It corrupts the whole world through us. Christians, uh, people who believe in the Bible, label this that sin. It's a rebellion against our rightful God. It's a transgression against his law. It's going astray from our lovely Father, our loving Father. And the results of that are brokenness. The results of that are what we see around us. 
a broken world, broken relationships, hardship, pain, suffering, how we treat people, how we shouldn't treat people, and that we can look around and this idea of sin is actually one of the only empirically verifiable doctrines of the Christian faith. For ever since we have human history, it testifies to reality that we mess things up and things are not how they're supposed to be. But it hasn't always been that way. That the Bible tells us that something happened. As we just read in the last two weeks that God made the world and he made it good and that humanity was made to worship him and be in a relationship with him and it seemed like paradise. And so what happened? Genesis 3 tells us what happened to that paradise we used to live in, humanity used to live in. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 3 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we are going to walk through chapter 3. I'm going to do something a little different. Instead of just reading the whole thing and then expounding upon it, I'm going to break it down into some bite-sized chunks and talk about this as we go through this. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So right away, we're introduced to a new character, this serpent. And the Bible describes him as, something, as a beast of the field, that he's craftier than other beasts of the field. But there's something more going on here because this is not Narnia. Animals don't talk. We know that, right? And so the serpent slithers up to Eve and starts speaking. And when I read that, I think she's probably she's like, whoa, whoa, the serpent's speaking. But reality shows us that something deeper is going on, something's behind this, and that this is not just a serpent, but this is actually the ancient enemy, Satan himself, whispering in Eve's ear. And we know this because we don't just read the Old Testament by itself, but being Christians, we know that we're supposed to read this in light of the New Testament, and the New Testament makes it clear that this is Satan. For when you read in Revelation uh, uh, twice, in, in uh, Revelation 12 and then in Revela Revelation 20, it talks about that dragon, and it says, which is the ancient serpent, Satan? And so it's telling us this serpent that whispers this lie into Eve's ear is none other than the ancient enemy that we have been battling since the beginning. And so this serpent slithers up to Eve and whispers this question in her ear. It seems innocent, doesn't it? So innocent. Did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? So innocent. But what he's doing there is now all of a sudden smuggling in this assumption that humanity has the right to judge God's word. And notice how he starts, that question is focusing on the restriction, like, can you believe it? That he doesn't even let you eat of any of these fine treats? And so Eve engages him in conversation and replies to him in verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, um, I'm going to stop there. Yeah. So Eve replies, 
yes, we can eat of the trees, but then she seems to be focusing on that restrictive nature of the command and says, and adds to God's word and says, but we can't even touch that tree that we're commanded not to eat of. If you look back in chapter 2, you see the command that God gives Adam, and we're assuming that he passes it on to Eve, that they're supposed to eat of all these trees in the garden, but they cannot eat of this one particular tree. And so Eve knows the command. Eve, Eve knows what God has says, and yet she focuses on the fact that we can't even do anything with it. You can almost hear her saying, can you believe it? We can't even touch that tree, which God never said. She's already focusing on this restriction, this, this, this feeling that maybe God is holding out on us, to which the serpent replies, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That the serpent, the Satan, stops all kind of pretext of questioning. This says what he wants to say. God is a liar. You might think you die, but that's not what's going to happen. You will not surely die. In fact, when you eat it, you'll be like God. And he doesn't want that for you. You'll be like him. He's whispering these things that touch Eve's heart and make her want to be her own God, to be under the restrictions of her rightful maker and Lord. And he's calling God a liar. Let's stop for a second. All sin starts right there. All sin starts with this assumption. God is holding out on me, and I can have a better life without him. And that is the lie of the enemy that we see where it leads to as the story continues. So when, in verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of, the, of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, tree, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eve looked at this fruit, and she was tempted. She was tempted by the possibility, so she took and ate, and guess who was standing right next to her, not saying a word? Adam. For she ate of this fruit and then turned around and gave it to him, and they both transgressed God's one command, do not eat of this fruit. That they whispered, they listened to the whispers of the, of the enemy and thought that this would be better for them to eat of it. I love how a writer, Jared Wilson, puts it when he says, Adam and Eve did not lack for food, and yet his fruit looked good for food, promising to satisfy it in a way yet undiscovered. The world was new and grand, and yet this fruit was delightful to look at, dazzling in a tantalizing different way. Adam and Eve had unfallen minds with an incredibly vast capacity for learning, and yet this fruit was desirable for attaining wisdom as if it held the key to the one locked door in their imagination, the door into the one room they didn't even know existed until a serpent shined his light on it. 
that they had everything they needed. There was no lack in this garden paradise for them, and yet they could look at this fruit and be tempted about the possibilities. Why? Because they were already listening to the lies of the enemy that said, this might be better than what God has for you. And so he took it, and we see the results of it in this text, that their eyes were both open. I don't know if you guys have ever done anything stupid. Um, it seems to be the story of my life. But have you ever been doing something and you don't realize how stupid it is until you all of a sudden see the results of it? And it's like your eyes all of a sudden are opened. You're like, oh, no, this is bad. It almost reminds me of every time I would wrestle with my older brothers as a little kid. You'd be wrestling with them and you're having fun, and all of a sudden you'd go too far and hurt them. And as they're on the ground, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to die. Your eyes are open to the reality of the situation. And that's what happens with Adam and Eve is they take this, the bite of the fruit and instantly they feel that disconnect with God. Instantly their eyes are open and they go, oh, no, what have we done? We were living in paradise and now we all of a sudden feel there's something wrong with us. That they, they felt naked that they also knew that they were exposed, exposed as transgressors against God's law. And so what do they do? They do what all humans do. They try to fix it. Fig leaves? Really? That's not going to change what happened. And yet they try to manage the situation. But it goes deeper than they can fix. For as the story continues in verse 8, and, then, and, then, <clears throat> and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We see what they lost, that this describes, this picture, that the Lord somehow would come down and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the garden. And all of a sudden, now we see the result of it, that they are hiding from him. Why? Because they're afraid of him. Why? Because they know they broke his one command. They realize that they are transgressors of his law. They realize they're unworthy now to be in his presence, and that he is holy, and that he is just, and they're scared of him. And I love this interaction because it's not like God does not know what happened, but he asks, where are you? He's getting them to admit what happened. And as we all laughed, how do they justify their sin? They blame everyone but themselves. Adam says, it wasn't me, God. That woman, she gave it to me. But she doesn't, he doesn't just blame Eve. He actually blames God. Because when you look at it, he says, that woman who you gave to me, by the way. I mean, it's not even, I mean, it's kind of your fault, God. She gave me this apple, this apple, this fruit, and I ate it. And God goes, well, Eve, what's your explanation? 
And she says, well, it's that serpent, you know. He just started talking to me, and I got confused, and I ate it. And now we see the reality of sin, that there's this broken relationship now going on between them and God, and then that they start blaming everyone else but themselves, and, and there's confusion that's starting to reign. And so how does God respond? He responds with judgment, as we see, starting in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so right away he starts cursing the second. He, he pronounced judgment on the serpent, the snake, on the, on the devil for his actions here. But even in the midst of this curse, he offers a glimmer of hope. Even in the midst of pronouncing how they have gone astray from his law, he cannot help but say, but wait, there's hope, a glimmer in this darkness. And it's a fact that there will be someone coming who's going to take care of the, of the serpent, take care of the, of the Satan. In his ways. But he continues with the talking about the, what's happening to man and woman in the world because of this. In verse 16, he says, And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, it shall, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return see immediately the consequences that happened from Adam and Eve breaking away from what God intended for them, from what God has set up for them, and that you have this pain and suffering entering into the life. You have this conflict entering in between them, and that you have this, this conflict between the husband and wife, and then you have this pain and suffering about how work is going to be done and how people are going to feed themselves. And if you ever have gone up on Monday morning and gone, my goodness, I don't want to go to work, it's because of right here, we sweat and toil and have to go to work. And that's not how it was made to be. But ultimately, we see the results of it, and that is death. For out of dust we came, and to dust we return. And starting in verse 20, it says, And the man called his wife wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now at least he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. As a result of sin is not just that brokenness that they feel with God, not the brokenness that they feel between each other, but he exiles them out of the paradise, and they can't get back. But even then, even in that judgment, we again see that glimmer of hope for God loves 
the man and the woman, and he clothed them how they could not clothe themselves, with skins covering them, which points to this hope that we have. There's a lot in this text from Genesis chapter 3, but what can we learn from it was? How can we understand this? And I'll just put it like this, that we need a better Adam to save us. We need a better Adam to save us. For this is the turning point of the whole story. This is the turning point of the Bible so far. It's a pivot that we had paradise with God, and yet we messed it up. We went astray. We rebelled. Humanity ran away from their rightful God, and the relationship that we once had with him is messed up. And ever since then, humanity has felt this longing. Ever since then, humanity has felt this need to be in a relationship with their creator. Ever since then, humanity has been lying and wasting been trying to get back to paradise, to right relationship with our God, and we can't do it. On our own, we can't get back to God. And this is the hope that the Bible presents, that in the first Adam, all humans fell away from God, that there's coming a better Adam, an Adam who will save us. This is a testimony from Romans, in Romans 5, 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, it's talking about how sin came in through this one man, Adam, and death came because of him. There's hope because salvation is coming through one man, the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, for as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall die shall all be made alive. This promise, this hope that since we have death through Adam, we can also have life through Christ, the better Adam. That humanity now, as we presently exist, sits either under the headship of Adam, where we're going to be in sin and death and destruction, or we sit under the headship of Jesus Christ, where he saves us through his action, through his sacrifice, and brings us to God. This passage points us to the truth that we need a better Adam to save us. And to realize this, it points out the reality of sin. That's the turning point of this whole chapter, is this reality of sin and what it does, which is not a popular concept in our day and age. Sin is downplayed. Sin is ignored. Sin is really not talked about. We don't talk about sin in polite company. We don't, you don't bring up sin at a dinner party. People don't like to talk about this concept of sin. In fact, most people even start to rebel against the even concept that we can sin in the first place. We don't like to talk about that because it sounds restrictive, it sounds condemning, it sounds judgmental, and nowadays we live and swim in a whole society that doesn't really want to be that. In fact, I would argue that if this was written today, the heroes of the story would be Adam and Eve. For we uphold personal choice, we uphold liberty first and foremost in our society. And so if you read it it with that lens, you see Adam and Eve, the poor oppressed people, fighting against that rigid overlord. And so many people, I think, would argue and see it in that light today. But that's so anti-biblical, it's absurd. For we 
have to read this in the context of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when we seek the God who, who we worship as a good God, the creator God, the rightful ruler, that he is, wants what's best for us, that he sets us up into paradise, that he's given us everything we need to thrive and to live a fulfilled, satisfied life. Which when we paint it in that light, we see the heinousness of Adam and Eve going astray from our God and rebelling against him. That they're falling into this trap that there might be something better than God's way. That they're falling into this trap doubting the goodness of our God. The poet, poet and author Jackie Hill Perry puts it like this. Since God is holy and utterly good by nature, even his harshest commands are worthy of your obedience. Or to say it another way, if God is as good as he says he is, then every single command is good for you, even if he doesn't feel good for you. That Adam and Eve had lost sight of the goodness of their creator God, and so thought there might be something better, and they transgressed his law. They sinned. That is committing cosmic treason. Treason. They were rebels. That they willfully rebelled against their rightful ruler. They willfully went astray from their rightful God. They willfully looked at their loving Heavenly Father and said, we don't need you. In fact, we want to be better than you. And they went their own way. And because of that, reality itself was shattered. How we experience this world was broken. And if you have any questions about that, just look around. And we see the ramifications and the implications played out day by day. And the ultimate consequence of this was that humanity would now die. Physical death entered into humanity, for now they are barred from the tree of life, which would have kept them alive forever. But beyond that, we don't see that happening right away in the text. What we do see happening is something deeper, something more innate to who they are, is that this spiritual death the Bible talks about happens. That as Ephesians talks about how we're dead in our sins and transgressions, this spiritual death that breaks us from our creator happens right away. It's why they knew they were naked. They felt the sense of guilt and shame, and they had to hide because their relationship with their creator was now not what it was supposed to be. And this affects all of who we are, our minds, our affections, our desires, our decisions. Everything is broken because of this. And we experience that brokenness that this chapter outlines for us that we have that brokenness with God, that when he comes near, we try to hide from him because we feel that we don't measure up. We have this brokenness with others, that conflict is going to be reigning between us, that we're going to try to control one another, that we're not going to have peace and harmony with one another anymore, that we're going to try to dominate one another, that we're going to use other people for our own ends and, and all this brokenness with others. And, and this is a natural result of bucking against God's law. And we have this brokenness within ourselves where we fear, feel just like Adam and Eve that something is off and we're afraid of the good creator and we're hiding from him as he searches for us. All of this brokenness we feel each and every 
today. If you don't know Christ, you feel this brokenness, even if you try to, try to uh, explain it away, even if you don't know where it's coming from, you feel like something's off. And even those of us who know Christ still feel the, 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 the brokenness lingering in our lives because we yet have been glorified. We have yet reached the end. And so we feel it still haunting us as we look around. We realize this is not how it's supposed to be. And we try to fix it under our own power, sowing some fig leaves and covering up cosmic treason. That we try to put some band-aids over a wound that needs surgery. That we try to plaster over a broken crack that is because of a foundational fault in our lives. And no matter how we try to cover it up, it keeps on showing itself again and again. That's the reality of sin. And if we don't know that, we don't know our need for a better Adam to save us. But you got to love the word. For in the darkness of this reality, we see hope. It's like God is so excited about the plan he has for us that he cannot help but pronounce judgment and right in the midst of it, but, but, but wait, guys. Something's coming, and it's going to rock your socks off. He can't help but give us this hope for right in the middle of talking to the serpent, talking to Satan, and saying, you are going to be cursed. And in fact, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a war going on between your offspring and the offspring of woman, and there's going to be this battle. doesn't sound like good news, but he says, but wait, someone is coming. He says there's going to be an offspring, an offspring of the woman, and this offspring is going to crush your head, Satan. And yes, you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to bring victory. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the first hint of the gospel. That looking back on this and reading it with New Testament eyes, we see the truth that that someone who's going to come is Jesus Christ, and he is going to crush Satan on that cross. And when he rises again on that Sunday morning, and he's going to be, his heel's going to be bruised. Yes, it's going to take, cost him, it's going to cost pain, but he's going to save us through that. That we have hope right here that someone is coming, and he's going to be an offspring of the woman. If you've ever wondered why Genesis is filled with genealogy after genealogy, it's because of this right here. If you've ever wondered why in Matthew and in Luke, when it talks about the birth of Jesus, that it starts with the genealogies of where he came from, is because of this right here, is that there's a promise stated at the beginning of the Bible that a seed, an offspring of the woman is coming, and everyone's been looking and waiting for this offspring, and they've been tracing the lineage from Adam and from Eve and saying, who is this going to be? And they've been waiting expectantly. And we see the truth of who he is revealed in the New Testament that is Jesus Christ. Born of woman. Born under the law to save those under the law. When God saw it was right timing, he sent his son to save us. Because we need a better Adam to save us. 
one who can live without sin that we cannot do, one who can withstand the temptations of Satan, which we cannot do, and one who takes our sin upon himself, takes our place in death that we all deserve. This is the promise that we look to, that we need a better Adam to save us. So where do we turn in light of this Where do we look to when we look at Genesis 3 and see the reality of sin played out in our lives and in our world? Where do we turn? Well, Eve looked at the fruit. And she was tempted by temptations we all feel. That she saw that promised fulfillment. She saw that was beautiful, it was enticing in some way. She saw that maybe offered some enlightenment that she was being denied. And if you look around That is what humanity has been charging after since then. They've been looking for something to fulfill them, something to satisfy them, something to make them complete. They've been looking for something beautiful, something tantalizing. We're so easily drawn this way and that by shining, fancy things that we're like, ooh, that might do the job. And we're looking to be wise, to be enlightened, to make some gain some understanding of this world. And so humanity has been looking all these directions just like Eve looked at this fruit. And yet we're called to look beyond that to something that is more lasting, more pure, something that offers greater fulfillment, is more beautiful, and brings enlightenment that we cannot even truly understand. And that is Jesus Christ. So where do we look to? We look to him. We look to the better Adam. We look to him because he is our savior. And I love if you compare Jesus with Eve and Adam in, in these scenarios and in, this, in the stories, you see that Jesus is the better Adam. For whereas Eve, and I would say Adam, looked upon this fruit and were tempted by Satan and fell away from their God, Jesus lived perfectly, sinlessly for us. That at the start of his ministry, he went out to the desert and he was in fasting and praying for 40 days and he was hungry. And it says, now the Satan slithers up to the better Adam and says, I know you're hungry. Turn these rocks into bread. You can do it if you're the son of God. And how does Jesus respond? Man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. That he was tempted even more than Adam and Eve were tempted. And yet he stood firm. That he followed God. That he followed his ways. And that he lived a life we could not live. And then he offers that life, that righteousness to those who would believe in his name. So where do we look to? We look to the better Adam. So where do we point If all the world is going after these things, just like Adam and Eve did, where do we point? We point to that better Adam, and we use the word that he's given us to point to that better Adam, that we have to combat hellish lies with heavenly truths. And so we winsomely proclaim that there's something better than what this world offers. We winsomely proclaim there's something deeper that satisfies better than what you might find here and now. There's something that gives you greater enlightenment, that makes you more complete, that satisfies and tantalizes and is more beautiful than anything this world and the ways opposed to God have to give to you. 
And that is found in his word and in who Jesus is. So we point to that better Adam. We point and we hope and we expect him to be at work. So where we look, we look to Jesus. Where do we point? We point to him. And how do we hope? We hope in the one who came. All through Genesis and beyond in the Old Testament, they were hoping in the one who is coming, but we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and we hope in the one who came, the one who saved us, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose from the grave for us, the one who ascended to God for us, the one who's interceding now, presently, day by day for us. We hope in him, not only that, but we hope he's going to come back, and we expect he's going to return and wipe every tear from our eyes and make every wrong right and we hope that this world is going to be made as it's supposed to be made as he comes and rules as our Savior and Lord. And we hope in that. That he is coming to make it all new because we know that we need a better Adam to save us. Jesus Christ who saves us, who leads us, and it comes to reign over us. Join with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your word that we can see the reality of sin, but we also see the hope on how you're moving presently and how, the hope of how you have saved us and will save us and continue to save us. And Lord, we pray that we can be bold in proclaiming this hope to those around us, that we can be bold and making people know that this is the truth, that this is how one comes to know you. So, Lord, we ask that you continue to work in our lives, can continue to help us realize the implications of this verse, this passage, that we can proclaim it with love to those around us, that we can live in light of the reality of how you save us. Lord, we love you. We seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.